Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We believe that the gospel really is good news, that the blood of Jesus worked, and that Jesus meant it when he said, It is finished. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to God, forgiven and free, clean and close, holy and beloved, blessed and made new. If God is doing something special in your life, we would love for you to tell us about it. You can simply email us at info at lifejourneyva.com. One of the reasons we are able to provide these weekly podcasts is because of the generosity of people like you. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. So we're going through the book of John, not like, you know, at a slow, slow pace, verse by verse, but kind of like, you know, half chapter or so at a time is what it's looking like right now. And for those who are just joining in with us, the whole book of John was written by one of the disciples named John, and he had a very unique relationship with the Lord. I'm titling it this way, Jesus, the life of Jesus, the book of John is the life of Jesus as told by the disciple who knew his love. And, and that's John. There's a very unique interaction. We'll get to it in John, I think it's chapter 13 in a, in a few months where the, John describes himself as the one whom Jesus loved. Of course he loved them all, but there was just something unique about John's relationship with the Lord that I think helps us understand the Lord even better because the Apostle Paul, his whole prayer for the church at Ephesus, gosh, for all the churches, was that they would come to know the depths and the breadths of God's love for them. We can participate in all the behavior modification things in the, in the world, but if we do not come to receive and understand the depths of God's love for us, we're helpless and hopeless at actually discovering what this life thing is all about and what this Christianity thing is all about. And I'm not going to take the time to like knock this thing from Wednesday that is uh, participated by, by millions of Christians around the world. But let's remember that the Apostle Paul himself in Colossians 2 says that when we take these different um, commitments of taste not, touch not, you know, want not, whatever he says there in Colossians 2, it sounds on the surface like that's great wisdom. But he says it's foolishness at actually curbing fleshly desires. And so I'm not trying to like, you know, make a big deal about it, but taking 40 days before Pentecost, what is it, before Passover, before Easter, to like really double down on your efforts to do better and try harder, I'm just saying that's not the secret, the secret, if you will, it's not a secret, it's, it's black and white in the scriptures, is to receive his love for you. And then when we're filled with that, we're filled with something that this world cannot offer and cannot take away. And come whatever comes, we remain at peace in the midst. I mean, the disciples, some of them were torn limb for limb and they were all right. Not physically. I mean, <laughs> they were losing their arms and their legs. But they were okay. Why? Because they had come to learn of God's love for them. And that sounds so simple. Well, that's so simple. Well, maybe we've complicated things a bit. So we're just slowing down, walking through this book, this gospel we call the Gospel of John, to discover what John saw, what John knew. And uh, uh, Brandon spoke a couple times, or one time, David spoke a couple weeks ago. Uh, awesome is that uh, 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 Derek is going to speak next week. 
finishing out the chapter. And so, chapter five, and so it's really cool. It's just getting more and more uh, people, you know, sharing what they believe the Lord is showing them in the scriptures as we walk through this. So before we jump in, I have a a quick little um, uh, story to share. When I was in college, there was spring semester of my junior year, and I was taking a class. It was called, it was an integrative studies class. I was a religion major, and in order to earn a bachelor of arts, um, you had to take some classes that were in this integrative studies uh, catalog that were not having to do with your major. Like it couldn't be a Bible class or a religion class, or whatever. And so, of the ones that fit my schedule, there was one called Health 400. So it's upper level health class. And I had never had any underlevel health classes, and so, you know, but I had to take it in order to get my BA, or, yeah, Bachelor of Arts. And so, we're in class, uh, Dr. Linster, I remember it, but here's the deal. It was me and, like, one other guy and about 40 um, family consumer science majors, and that's, you know, home economics sort of a deal, and me and one other guy. Now, April and I had just started dating. We weren't engaged, you know, so keep that in context, all right, for the rest of the story. So, um... We're in lecture, the, t- the, the professor, he's asking questions, and if I knew the answer, you know, I'd raise my hand. If I didn't know the answer, I definitely ain't going to raise my hand and show kind of a, you know ignorant fool I was. Um, but before I, I, before I tell that part, in high school, I had a really, really good anatomy and physiology teacher my senior year of high school. So this is only like two years, two and a half years after this really great anatomy and physiology teacher in high school whom you know, just made the human body just so uh, 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 cool to me and just learning about it. So we're in Health 400, me, this one other dude, and a bunch of women. And the, the professor asked the question, what is, who knows what PID is? PID, silence, crickets, nobody raised their hand. Well, I raised my hand. He said, he looked at me, because remember, I'm the, the, not only one of the only males, but I'm like, you know, the football guy who just happens, to, has to take the class. He has no interest in health, no interest in family consumer science, but has to take the class. He, he calls me, calls on me, says, Walt, what, what, what do you know about this? I mean, like that sort of attitude. And I was like, pelvic inflammatory disease. This look of shock came on his face. <laughs> Like, like literally, like I was explaining this to Craig earlier, like, it was like, who are you to know what that is? Like, how, how would you, so this is how he articulated it. He said, in front of all these girls, remember, you know, how do you know what that is? Like, that's literally how he said it, Dr. Linster. How do you know what that is? Well, how did I know what it was? You already know, because I already told you. I answered back to him in front of 40 women. I'm like a call them beautiful women, but I mean, they were college women. And I said, I had it in high school. (laughs) And and I didn't realize what was happening at that moment. And I'm confused. Why are they looking at me like this? 
And it wasn't until the desk started scooching away from my desk <laughs> that I realized what just happened. And then I had to speak up and silence, you know, the crowd and like, you know, you know, the ones running for, you know, uh, hazmat suits. I said, no, 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 no. I, I had it in class. Like I learned about it in high school. And I don't think they ever, uh, good thing I was already dating April because I just immediately was, you know, uh, un, uh, uh, whatever, you know, Un, unworthy or whatever the word would be. But here's the point. <clears throat> when you hear just part of a story, you just hear one little piece of it and you don't understand the full context of it, things can mean something totally different than what really happened. I did not have pelvic inflammatory disease. Now, if I had, it's okay. You know, things happen. But I didn't. And but I had it in class. My wonderful anatomy and physiology teacher had taught about it, and I remembered it. So I raised my hand. But that wasn't what came across to the people. What came across to the people is that I was infected with this disease. There's a verse that we're going to see here this morning in John chapter 5 that many people have taken out of its context, out of its dialogue of what's going on and have developed entire denominational theologies about it that are horrific. People have come away from this passage thinking that Walt has or had pelvic inflammatory disease. But the truth is completely opposite. Here's the verses. Do not marvel at this. This is Jesus talking. This is verse 28. We're going to rewind to verse 1, okay? But this is 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, talking about the Son of Man, talking about himself, and will come forth. And those who did good deeds at the to, to a resurrection of life, and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Period. End of sentence. So, if you read this one verse on the back of a bumper sticker of a back of a car or on someone's shirt and you walk away thinking, well, that's how it is. The day is going to come when the resurrection happens and if you have done the good deeds, hey, things are good. Welcome to heaven. But if you have done the evil deeds, toast. So I better start doing the good deeds. Well, the problem is, well, we'll get to the problem. What if you have even one evil deed on your account? I was talking actually this morning at about 6 o'clock. How Drake wakes up, because that was really 5.30 for him, 5 o'clock for him. I don't know how he was up so early. I was talking with him about this verse because I was looking over my notes. And I explained this to him. And his, his response was, a, a five-year-old. He said, well, then who can? Get into heaven, if that's how it works. And I said, son, <laughs> exactly. So let's start in verse 1, because uh, this, is, this is powerful, what we're going to see today. After these things, what things? The things that happened in chapter 4. Jesus went from Jerusalem up through Samaria, remember the woman at the well, and then up into Galilee, where he had uh, healed or raised the, the dead girl, after these things, he actually goes back down to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. There are several feasts throughout the year. It doesn't say which feast this is, but it might, 
and I don't know, but it might because the previous feast that he just left Jerusalem from what was Passover. And so this might be the one that comes right after Passover, which is Pentecost 50 days later. And Pentecost for the star next to your name on the Bible trivia chart is a celebration of the giving of the what? Starts with an L and ends with an awe. Law. It is a celebration of the giving of the law. Now, it doesn't say this is Passover, uh, Pentecost, but let's just assume for a second it might be. It has every ch- one out of four chance. I think there's four feasts. So there's a 25% chance to be that. But it very likely is in the time because he just left and now he's going right back. 50 days later is the idea. This is a celebration of the law. All of them putting their hope, all the Jews putting their hope that their okayness with the God of the universe is in their birthright, being born of Abraham, but also them accomplishing, doing the law. So he goes up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, um, a pool, which is in Hebrew called Bethsaida, having five porches or porticos. Bethsaida, in the Greek, uh, Hebrew, sorry, literally means house of mercy. So there's this pool called the house of mercy. Bethlehem, house of bread. Beth, in the Hebrew, is house. Bethsaida, uh, uh, Bethesda, but what, what is it? Beth, Bethesda. Bethesda, sorry, I'm saying it wrong, Bethesda. What did I say? Yeah. Just go with it. Um, but Bethsaida literally means house of, uh, house of, um, what did I say? Mercy. House of mercy. And so we probably are familiar with the story that's going to happen next. But just imagine this pool called the house of mercy that these people, these invalids are trying to get in. They're trying to get into mercy for healing. So keep that in mind. In these, in these porches, these porticos, lay a multitude of those who were sick, they were blind, they were lame, and they were withered. Now, see this bracket here? This next little section isn't in the oldest of manuscripts, but it may have been original, may not have been original, but it doesn't really matter totally whether it was original or not, but we're going to read it. What were they doing? They were waiting for the moving of the waters for... An angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons. So not like every day at 2 o'clock. It was random when this would happen. At certain seasons into the pool and the angel stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, the first person who stepped into it after it was stirred by these angels was made well from whatever disease with which they suffered. He was afflicted. So we got the context. Now that's the end of that bracket. That might have been original. That might not have been original. It doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of what we're going to see today, but I just want to point that out. So we got the context. There's this pool. The pool is called the house of mercy. An angel comes down, stirs the water. Whoever the first is in line, whoever the first is to get in, they're healed from it. So there's a lot of people there. Presumably, they want to get healed. So Jesus comes through that time, through that place. Look at verse 5. He says, a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. Now, the life expectancy really wasn't much more than that at this point in time. Mid-30s was kind of the life expectancy. They did not live very old in this time. And so he had 
Who knows how old he was when he got the illness? It doesn't say from birth. So he's been ill for 38 <clears throat> years. When Jesus saw him laying there, and he knew that he had already uh, that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, "Do you wish to get well?" Now that seems like an odd question. Why would he be there, Jesus, if he didn't wish to get well? Why, why would he he'd be somewhere else? Well, I think this seems like a silly question, but I think it's important because we're going to see in a little bit. I'm going to submit to you. I could be wrong, but I'm going to submit to you that this guy might not have actually wanted to get well or actually at least not in the way that Jesus makes him well. Do you wish to get well? Sounds strange. Of course, he would want to get well, but maybe not. You see, there was a system of sorts where people would walk through these porticos and see all the ill, the sick, the lame, and they would be begging for money, begging for food. And the people would have compassion on them and they would give them some alms, you know, for the poor. They would give them some, a loaf of bread and they would, it would be a, a, a form of, uh, of fulfilling the Mosaic law in certain ways by helping those who are less fortunate. And so how long was he in this condition? 38 years. So for 38 years, he had begged enough to survive. Now, None of us would say that's where we would want to be, like in comparison with like having your own home, having a wife, family, kids, etc. But it was working for him in a certain sense. He had his friends. He had his network of, 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 of fellow beggars. And he, it was working for him for 38 years. He had not died from hunger, starvation. If the man was made well, what would he lose? He would lose... The handout. He would lose the ability to say, hey, I am ill for 38 years. Can you please help me? So the possibility exists, the scriptures don't clearly say this, that he might not really have wanted to be well because he's been at this pool potentially for 38 years. You mean in 38 years you can't get in? And so the possibility exists that he didn't want to get well because he'd have to figure out something else to do. He'd have to earn a trade become an electrician. He'd have to start a business making furniture. He'd have to do something to support himself, whereas he didn't have to as long as he stayed in that condition. He'd have to maybe even make new friends because the, his, his friends, his whole sphere of 38 years of influence was sitting around this pool. And so this sounds like a silly question from Jesus, but I think it's a great question do you want to get healing in a way that you aren't necessarily looking for it? I hear Jesus saying. Because the man says in a, in a minute, we'll get to it, he, he says that he's trying, he's been trying, but he just doesn't have help, which is legit. But, I mean, I wasn't there, I don't want to cast judgment, but 38 years? You can't get to the front of the line in 38 years. So what was the system? Remember, an angel would stir the water, and the first one that gets in would be healed. That's how it was. And that was the basket. Think of the basket with all the eggs. That was where he had put all of his eggs. This was the system that healing would come. 
I would, by my effort, my energy, because apparently nobody's going to help me, I'm going to wake my way down into the water and get my, and receive. What is that water? What is that pool? Bethsaida? House of mercy. So I'm going to enter into the house of mercy on my own. Let's get that. I'm entering into mercy. Lame, ill, weak, but I'm going to get there on my own. Now, what was this festival possibly? Celebration of the law. Do you see this? I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to get there on my own. I'm going to fulfill it. I'm going to enter into mercy by my behavior, by my goods, outweighing my bads. So the sick man answered Jesus. Remember, he's got all his eggs in that basket of trying to get to the front of the line. But is he really trying? That's the question. I'm not sure. And Jesus is basically saying, hey, I've got another basket here for you. But Jesus says to the sick man, sir, I have no one, no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, while I am trying, I'm doing my hardest to get there. Somebody steps down before me and they get the mercy and I don't. But I'm but I'm trying now, whether he really is or not, I swear, I'm just like, I don't know. But he says he's trying the best he can. And no matter how hard he tries, he can never what? Get in. Get into what? The house of mercy. Now, this might be a celebration of the law, Pentecost, the festival. And you have a sick man who is trying his hardest to get into mercy, but he what? Can't. Can't. Is that not the celebration of the law? No matter how hard we try to get into this mercy, we cannot. Because the law is the power of what? Sin. So the sick man, he says, nobody can help me in. I'm trying my hardest, but I can't get in. Verse 8. So Jesus says to him, I love it. He says, you might not get, be able to get into the house of mercy, but the house of mercy is about to get into you. Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Just words. That's all it takes. This man's been on his effort trying for 38 years. Again, I don't know how hard he's been trying, but for 38 years he's been trying to get in when the angel stirs the water. And Jesus just says some words, and that's it. That's not how this is supposed to work. The way the system works is the angel touches the water, and he, by his own effort, he beats everybody else to get in. Whenever the season happens to be when the angel happens to touch it. Very unpredictable. But Jesus just shows up and totally against the system, totally against the way that it works, he says, just get up and walk. That's not how this is supposed to go down. What is Jesus thinking? Let's keep reading. Immediately he became well and picked up his pallet, think of like a sleeping bag, and he began to walk. Now here comes the controversy of all controversy. Now it was the what on that day? Sabbath. Now, we're not going to go into great detail on what Sabbath is. I think we have a decent understanding. But Sabbath is sundown on Friday nights to sundown on Saturday night. And it is one of the Ten Commandments 
to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy by, now here's the by, by doing no work. Well, what work? What kind of work qualifies? Well, the Pharisees, they had developed this entire list of what you can do and what you can't do on the Sabbath and how you can and how you can't so that nobody can violate the Sabbath. And one of the things has to do with carrying your sleeping bag. Now, there's a lot of different nuances to it that I want to bore you with, but that's not the point. The point is he's carrying a sleeping bag and the Pharisees, not necessarily the law, but the Pharisees have made rules to say that you can't carry your sleeping bag on a Saturday. And so this man is in the crosshairs of the Jews, the religious. But is the man happy? Is he upset? Is he scared? Let's keep reading. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it's the Sabbath. It's Saturday, man. And it is not permissible for you to carry your sleeping bag on Saturday. Now I'm being a little sarcastic here because this is a little silly. But what, what are they not saying? They're not saying, holy guacamole. I know you for 38 years. And you've been trying your hardest to get in. And somebody always steps in. They're not saying that. They're not saying how does this happen? Who is it that did that? Well, they are going to ask that in a second. But they're not, they're not enamored with the fact that the guy who's been crawling around on his hands and knees for 38 years now toting his sleeping bag. Their first worry is what? You're violating our rules about the Sabbath. They are judging him. They're condemning him for what seems to be kind of silly. But don't you find it strange that they're not saying, wow, you're healed? I find it strange. I don't even know if they recognize that he's healed. Like, they don't say that. They, all they recognize is that he's carrying his sleeping bag. So he answered him. Uh, this is kind of strange. He answered him. So, so get this. You're just minding your own business. You're trying to get into the water. Maybe you're really trying. Maybe you're not. I don't know. Suddenly somebody shows up and brings the house of mercy to you because you, you can't get into the house of mercy. And you get in trouble for doing what he said, tote your sleeping bag out of here. You start getting in trouble. What would you say? Same thing that Eve said, right? Or Adam said, this woman you gave me <laughs> gave it to. That's exactly what he does. He said, the guy who healed me. Oh, by the way, don't you notice I'm healed? <laughs> the guy who healed me told me to do this. So look at this. He said, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. He's like, he told me to do it. It wasn't just me doing this on my own. And so they asked him, who is this man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? What's not there? Who is this man that what? Healed you. You see this? They could care less about that. Because that is a, I think it's because it is uh, direct competition to their corner market on the religious system of Judaism. If there's a guy showing up all of a sudden that's turning water into wine, that's raising dead girls and is healing 38 year, 38 year long invalids, we've got some competition on our hands. So they're not interested in that. They're looking for a reason to judge and condemn this man. You see this? So who was this man? Now, the guy actually didn't know. He didn't know. 
the man, the 38-year the invalid, Ill, Ill guy, who was healed, did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. What place? Where the, the pool was. And so he didn't know who it was. Are we all together? We know what's happening? We're on the same page here? The Jews are mad at this guy who's carrying his sleeping bag on a Saturday. They haven't even recognized that he's been healed. They want to know who told him to tote his sleeping bag. Not who healed you. We want to learn about the guy who heals. But this guy doesn't know. And so the Jews are mad. Does he know that the Jews are mad? It'll say in a second. So I'll tell you. Yes, he knows. I mean, it's pretty clear. He's being uh, interrogated. They want, they want a name. Who is it that violated our rules? So this guy knows. Look at what happens next. Verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him, him, the guy he healed. He found him in the temple. So now they're actually in the temple courts. When was the last time this guy had been in the temple courts? At least 38 years before, if that ever, ever before. So he's actually now gone to the temple to do what? Presumably to make sacrifices. I mean, the guy has been 38 years of sinning over at the pool. It's time for him to make his sacrifices and get right with God. And look at what Jesus says to him. This is very strange. He says, behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. That sounds strange to me. Does it sound strange to you? Is it a little odd to you? What does that mean? What is Jesus saying? Is that the way it works? Well, there's a lot of different ways that we could look at this. One, I think we could look at this as Jesus saying, you're here at the temple. That's cool. But you understand that this temple is just but a shadow. And if you think that coming here to get your sins absolved at this temple is really what you need, then, hey, you better get them all absolved so nothing worse happens to you. You know, that could be the concept. It could also be every time you sin, there's holy righteous judgment against your sinning. And if you sin again, then you're going to be 38 years again, you know, by the pool. Maybe, but I don't think that's consistent with the rest of the scriptures. But it also could mean, hey, look, there are consequences to sinful behavior. You could get pelvic inflammatory disease, <laughs> right? There are consequences to, to sinful behavior. And so he could just be saying in a general sense, look, man, look, you, you, you're set now. Look, don't get back into what you were doing because it's going to hurt you. Th that could be what it is. I, I'm not exactly sure what Jesus is saying here, to be honest with you. But I'm pretty certain, at least now in the new covenant, it doesn't work the way that it seems to work. He's saying here, you sin, you're going to get something worse happen to you. That's not the way of the new covenant because at the cross, all of our sin has been what? removed, washed away, as far as the east is from the west. So we could say that that is what he's talking about because this is in the old covenant. So that maybe that is what he's saying. But regardless, we should not come away from this thinking, oh man, I, I just you know, went 26 in the 25, something worse is going to happen to me. Because that's not the way, that's not God's economy today. So anyways, going to verse 15. The man went away. Okay, now, now here's where we find out whether the man was glad that he was healed or if he was kind of ticked off. By what he does once he finds the identity of Jesus. The man goes away. I, I submit to you that if he was excited, if he was happy, if he was thankful, he would have acted one way. 
But if he was a little upset or if he was a little um, perturbed that Jesus had healed him and ruined his economy, ruined his money-making abilities, then he would act another way. This is how we act. You judge for yourself. He went away and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Why would he do that? if he was grateful and thankful for what Jesus had done, right? Because the man knows, he knows that the Jews are wanting to know who it was that made this happen to him, that did this to him. And it's kind of like Jesus made sure he knew so that Jesus would get in quote-unquote air quotes for the podcast listeners, trouble. He wanted this interaction, I submit to you. And so... um, Why would he spill the beans to the Jews that it was Jesus? All I can think of is that the man had his idea. He had his ideal way of getting healed. He wanted to work his way into mercy, the merciful waters when it was stirred. And no one was there to help him. So he was trying his hardest, perhaps, to do it himself. He was trying his hardest to enter into mercy himself. But Jesus messed all that up for him. This man had been trying for years, 38 years to be exact, to work his way into the house of mercy by his own efforts, his own strength, his own power. But then Jesus shows up and screws it all up by bringing the house of mercy to him freely. Apparently, this man was so mad that Jesus, at Jesus that he was willing to turn Jesus into the Jews instead of celebrating the mercy that Jesus had shown him and shown towards him. You see, I think, friends, this is the position of the religious Jews of that day and many religious zealots of our day today. We, we have a continual effort of trying to enter in and to try to stay in the house of mercy. But no matter how hard one tries... You cannot bring yourself into the house of mercy. Someone must bring the house of mercy to you. It's the only way. The only way to those who see it and receive it, receive what's been freely given, you enter into this house of mercy by the work of Christ. But there are those who just refuse it. Namely, in this case, the religious. And as a religious individual myself, I refused it for years because one must swallow their human pride in order to receive God's gift of mercy because there's no room for both. There's no room for self-made, self-earned righteousness. I'm going to work my way into the pool. There's no room for that and God's free gift of righteousness. My assessment, and I could be wrong, is that this man was mad at Jesus because he, Jesus freely gave him something that he wanted to earn, and he had been trying to earn it for 38 years. I mean, we have experience of that every day in our life. If we've got a hobby and we're trying to do something difficult with the hobby, we're, and then one of our kids walks in, and in like two seconds they do what we've been trying for hours to accomplish, it's like, give me a break. Come on. Because not, I mean, we were excited that it got accomplished, but it's like, how come I couldn't do it? Now look at verse 16. For this reason, what reason? 
the fact that Jesus was healing this guy and telling him to carry his sleeping bag on a Saturday. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on Saturday, on the Sabbath, which the law, the commandment, the Ten Commandments say to keep the Sabbath holy. Now this is where most people stop reading about this story about the man healed at the pool. But see, I think that the interaction with this man, the angels doing their thing, this man trying for 38 years, I think all of that was to set up the rest of the chapter, verses 17 through the end of the chapter. Because it's an extraordinary interaction between Jesus and these Jews who are so mad at him. These, this following interaction that we're going to look at half of it today and the next half next week with Derek would not happen, would not have happened if Jesus had not stopped at this pool and healed this man. But, but so many times when we approach this story, we just see the healing of the man and then we cut it off. We're left scratching our heads of what's that kind of all about. But the beauty of what we're doing through the Gospel of John is seeing the flow of it all. And now we see his interaction transitioning to the Jews. So they are persecuting him because of these things. But he answered them. Jesus answered him. The scene is set. The Jews, they have the rules. You can't do anything on Saturday. And they're questioning and they're persecuting Jesus. And like a perfect trial lawyer, Jesus is going to do three things. He's going to do a brief defense of himself. He's going to then turn the tables and prosecute them. And then he's going to introduce four witnesses. Derek is going to next week talk about the four witnesses. We're very quickly going to look at his defense and his prosecution of these Jews. Look at verse 17. He answered, my father is working until now. And I myself am working. Let's put on our thinking caps. What are they persecuting him for? For wedding on the Saturday. And what is Jesus saying? My, my father's working on Saturday. Whoa. That's hard for us Gentiles to really wrap our minds around. But Jesus is saying that God the father is working on Saturday. And I'm just doing what I see the father doing. Let's, let's, let's let that sink in for a second. Wait a second. You mean, Jesus, that the Father is working on Saturdays? Mmm. Them some fighting words. So much so, watch this, verse 18, for this reason. What reason? Jesus saying that the Father is working. The Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. How dare you say that God the Father is working on a Saturday? Because that is in direct violation of our traditions, what we understand. Not only that, but he's breaking the Sabbath, but also because he was calling God his own father. He said, my father, thus making Jesus equal with God. So not only are you blaspheming, saying that God is working on a Saturday, but you're also saying that he's your father, making you equal with him. So they are now wanting to kill him. Uh, verse next. Um, doesn't it sound kind of extreme? I mean, why would they want to kill someone who's helping someone get healed after 38 years and telling him to tote around his sleeping bag? 
it just unveil, it just reveals to us just how intimidated the Jews were by Jesus. Jesus was about to bring their whole religious house of cards to, to crash, to crumbles, and they know it. So therefore, Jesus, Jesus answered him. So here's his defense. And he was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you that the Son himself can do nothing of himself unless it's something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. So Jesus is saying the only reason why I, on a Saturday, am healing a guy is because I see the heart of the Father. Oh, yeah, I am the heart of the Father. Remember chapter 1? The deepest, most innermost thoughts of God. That's me. In flesh. And so when I see the Father doing things, I'm going to do them because I and He are one. And so the reason why I see why I'm healing someone on Saturday is because I see the Father healing on Saturday. So don't get upset with me, get upset with the who? The Father. For the Son, uh, for the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. And the Father will show Him even greater works than these so that you will marvel. Now, quick time out. Because this, again, it's hard for us to, as Gentiles 2,000 years later, is to get as offended as these guys are going to get. Who did the children of Israel say their father was? Well, yeah, Abraham, but ultimately, God. The children of Abraham, the children of Israel, they are the descendants, the, the, the sons and daughters of God himself. And what does Jesus in another text say who their true father is? Anybody remember that? Satan, Beelzebub. Yeah, Satan, the enemy. That's your true daddy. But they think that they are the sons and daughters of God. They're the chosen Israelites. Well, Jesus is saying, I see the Father doing these things. Do they see the Father doing these things? Of course not. They see the Father as some cold distant off in the, in, the, in the farthest reaches of space where you're trying your best to reach up to Him. They don't see the heart of the Father as one who is working even on a Saturday to heal someone who's been trying their hardest to enter into mercy and He is going to bring mercy to them. They don't see that when they see the Father. And so what I hear Jesus saying is, I'm seeing the Father because I'm his son. Why aren't you seeing the Father this way? Oh, maybe it's because you are not his what? Sons, daughters. You see that? Wow. So that's why they're getting so ticked off. This isn't just Jesus saying, oh, I have this theological discourse here on the Father sees the Son and the Son sees the Father. Like he is calling it out. You don't see this because you are not legitimate children of God. So, he's also saying that your anger really isn't towards me. Your anger really is towards God. Because I'm just doing what I see him doing. So, if you're ticked off at me, then you're also by default ticked off at God, the one whom you're trying to impress. Jesus says there'll even be greater works than these. Telling a 38-year-old invalid to get up and took their sleeping bag is nothing. I hear Jesus saying, you think that's impressive on a Saturday? That's nothing compared to what you're going to see. And what is he talking about? Verse 21, for, 
Here's our word. We love it. It helps us understand. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to them, those whom he wishes. So you're going to see something that you ain't never seen before. Now, is he talking about physical life from physical death? I don't think so, because he just, in the last chapter, right, raised a little girl up in Galilee, I think, right? We talked about that last week. Maybe she was sick. But he's going to raise Lazarus. He could be. Yeah, it could, but, but I submit that, well, that's awesome. Let's don't take anything away from that. It's even bigger than that. Life, he's talking about the restoration of the Holy Spirit into the heart of man. See, that's what was lost in the garden. It wasn't just the fact that Adam and Eve disobeyed and they got kicked out. The Spirit of God was taken away from man in the garden. And Jesus is here saying clearly that you're going to see the Father, oh, and me, because he's going to let me do it, restore the Holy Spirit back into the hearts of men. And all you're going to be able to do is just be marveled. You're just going to marvel at it unless you enter into it and believe it and are a part of it. So this is the big deal. Jesus is talking about something yet to come. The Jews will only marvel at it unless they participate in it. And Jesus says he will give this life of the Holy Spirit to whomever he wishes. Well, who is that? He'll answer that in verse 24. So hold your thought on that. Who is it that Jesus wishes would have this life? So this is his defense real quickly. His defense is you're mad at me. I'm just seeing the father do this. So get mad at him if you're going to get mad at somebody. And I'm telling you, if you're going to get mad at him, you're just going to stay mad because there's some things that are going to come down the pipe that, that are just going to blow your socks off. But now Jesus sets his defense aside and he, he, he puts on like a, a prosecutor hat. Watch this. For not even the father judges anyone. They're all worried about the father judging. But he has given all judgment to whom? To the Son. Now let's, let's make sure we're, we're all together here. The f- Jews were judging Jesus because he was healing somebody on a Saturday. They were judging and condemning Jesus. And now Jesus is saying, all right, here, check this out. You want to talk about judgment? The Father doesn't even judge. He's given that responsibility to me. And so I am actually going to be your what? judge. You're worried about toting a sleeping bag on a Saturday? You guys better wake up. So that all, so that all will, will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does, uh, does not honor the Father who sent him. So Jesus is saying that these Jews have passed judgment on Jesus for healing someone on a Saturday, but the reality is that they were the ones who are going to be judged by Jesus. Jesus is letting them in on this little reality that Jesus himself is the judge. The father doesn't even judge. All judgment is done by the son. Now, verse 24, the next verse, is the pivotal verse of this entire chapter. It's going to answer two critical questions that we have going on right now. Question number one is, how is the son honored? He says that those who honor the son. How, how does that happen? How do we honor the son? And then it's going to answer the second question that we had earlier from the verse. 
who is it that Jesus wishes to give eternal life to? Right? That's a big question. He says, I'll give it to whoever I wish to give it to. Well, who's that? I want to be in that line. Who are those people? He answers that here in verse 24. Let's read it slowly. Truly, truly, I say to you that he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. So who is it? How is the son honored? By hearing what he has to say and believing what he has to say. That's how the son is honored. It's not by doing or not doing something on a Saturday. It's by hearing and believing. And who is it that Jesus wishes to give this life to? It's those who hear it and what? Believe it. It's that simple. That's who he wishes to give this life to. It's those who believe it, who hear it and believe it. And they do not come into judgment. He who hears and believes does not come into judgment I just wish that that one verse would kind of circulate through Christianity. I mean, how many of us have spent the majority of our lives fearful of some sort of future judgment by God after we die? I don't know where I got it from, but I had this whole concept that the, this big jumbo screen in heaven is going to play all of my uh, sins for, you know, for judgment at the great white throne or whatever that looks like. Like, that's how I thought it worked. And, and we're going to be rewarded and condemned for the things that we've done. You want a big mansion? You better have few things to be judged on. You want a small little shack, you know? Then you better, well, yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> but Jesus is saying completely different. He's saying, if you hear my words, what words? Of grace, of mercy, forgiveness, and believe it. Believe the one who sent me. You truly believe him. And these Jews were not believing him. And we're going to get to that next week with Derek. You will not come into judgment, but for you have passed out of death into life. What is the judgment? It's death. It's what Adam and Eve received in the garden. When they sinned and rebelled against God, the judgment of God upon mankind and the entire race of people that came from Adam was death. In the day in which you eat, you shall surely die. We know this. And that was the judgment. And everyone remains in that judgment until what? Until they hear and what? Believe. When you hear and you believe, you pass out of that judgment of death into what? Life. The Holy Spirit that was ripped away from Adam and Eve in the garden because of sin is now restored to you. How is that possible? Well, we know it's possible because all of our sin was taken away by the work of Jesus. And so he says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Who are the dead? I think it's whoever, whoever, whichever one of us. I was dead. That's why we kind of started off the service this morning with, let's talk about that, who you once were. Dead. I was dead until 1993 when I heard the voice of the Lord saying, come to me, receive, believe. And I did. 
and I exited that death that I had from in Adam, and I entered into this life of the Holy Spirit now living in. The day is coming, Jesus is saying, and it now is. It's here. It's what I've come to do to bring in, to usher in this new covenant, the will of God. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave the Son, gave to the Son this life to have life in himself. And he gave him, the son, authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. That phrase son of man is a reference directly to Ezekiel where Ezekiel describes the Messiah as being, quote, the son of man. And Jesus says, verse 28, just a few more verses here. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Here's our verse that we started off with. And will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now, what is Jesus meaning? I'm going to give you two options. All right? I'll give you two thoughts. Because the third I'm going to wipe away. There's a third thought, but it's just not even worth thinking. That third thought is that this, like, this is the concept. You do good, you get eternal life. You do bad, you go to, you know, you're judged in hell or whatever. Because that's clearly not the gospel. So what, are, what could that possibly mean? Option number one, what is Jesus doing? He's prosecuting them. And I hear him saying on one hand, I hear him saying, if, you, if this is how you really want it to work, you who are so quick to cast judgment upon me, the one whom you are judging is going to judge you in your way of thinking, your system, here's how your system is. If you have goods, if you've done goods, then you enter into a resurrected life. If you have any evils, then you enter into judgment. So if that's how you want it, that's how it's going to be. That's one option to see this. To which my five-year-old this morning said, what? Then who can pass? Because we've all failed, even all of us. So I hear Jesus kind of saying, look, if this is how you want it to be, then, then this is how it can be. But a second way of thinking about it is this. He just, in verse 24, described those who exit death into life. It's those who what? Hear and what? Believe. That is the good deeds. Hearing and believing. You see that? That's the good deeds. You're worried about toting a sleeping bag on Saturday? Are you serious? Here's the good deed. Hearing my word and believing my word. Believing him who sent me. And Derek's going to say this next week. But there's a witness against you who says you don't believe the one who sent me. And his name is Moses. Because if you believed Moses, then you would believe me. But you don't even believe Moses. Moses himself is testifying against you, Jews. Wow. You think they were ready to pick up some rocks and throw it at this guy? You better believe it. So that's how I would probably tend towards seeing it. The good deeds, hearing and believe, a resurrection of life. The, those who committed the evil deeds, resurrection to judgment, of judgment. Well, what would that be? Not believing, not hearing, not believing. Either way you look at it, you're good. You just cannot look at it, in my opinion, as this is the system. Let's weigh your goods, let's weigh your bads. If you're good, you're good. If you're bad, you're bad, and out you go. 
Because no one, and that's, that's, Paul, that's Paul's whole point in Romans. No one does good. No, not one. That's the whole point of Jesus coming to do for us what we couldn't do on our own. And so how does he, well, he doesn't wrap this up. We're going to pause it right in the middle of the conversation. Derek's going to continue it next week. But here's our last verse for today. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You see, Jesus had no sin in him to skew his judgment. These men, they did. Their judgment was totally skewed. They're trying to condemn Jesus. They're seeking to kill Jesus because he's telling people to tote their sleeping bag on a Saturday. And he's saying how skewed up that is. Can I say that? <laughs> how skewed up that is. I mean, that's, that's, don't you realize that the time is coming and now is that the dead will come to life because they hear and believe. Not necessarily talking about a physical death because a physical death becoming a physical life, that's awesome. He does it. But that physical life is going to do what again? Die. This is bigger than that. He's introducing the fact that there is a spiritual rebirth. He introduced it to Nicodemus in chapter 3. Now he's taking it public. And oh, by the way, where is Jesus and these Jews? Where are they literally standing at this point in time? In the Temple. temple. So cool. As the sacrifices are being offered all around them, the gutters are full of blood because this is a feast. There's thousands of people there making their sacrifices. So next week, Derek's going to continue. He's going to talk about four witnesses. These witnesses that testify to Jesus because Jesus, he says, and Derek will get into it next week. If, if this was just me saying this, then I would, be, I would have no, I'd have no uh, validity. But there's witnesses for me. The law requires at least two witnesses to validate a story. And he doubles that with four. And then there's a witness against the Jews, like I just said, Moses himself. So here's what I want us to see as we kind of press pause until next week. The man at Bethsaida, he had an idea. There was a system in place of how this healing worked. He works himself into the mercy pool, the merciful pool, the pool of mercy by his effort. I'm suggesting that this festival might even be the festival of of Pentecost, the celebration of the law, which is a celebration of people trying to work their way into the house of mercy. And Jesus, in the middle of the celebration of working your way into the house of mercy, comes in and he just blows it up out of the water by bringing the house of mercy to this man on a Saturday. And they can't handle it. And so he comes to them to turn their world. He turned this invalid's world upside down by bringing him something that he could never earn in a million years. And I don't think he was happy about it. But now he, he, showed, he did that to show a bigger picture to all of the Jews here in the temple saying, you think that you are going to cast judgment upon the Son of Man because I'm healing people on a Saturday? You better realize what's going on here. There's something so much bigger, something so much better that judgment for you is going to happen from me if you do not believe. But if you believe, just believe, just hear and believe, you will escape judgment and enter into this life that I have for you. Well, what about all of our effort? What about all of our work? What about 
all the things that we've done right and good. I hear Jesus saying, so whoop-de-doo. What, what does that compare to the sin of Adam and Eve? You're not only condemned because of what you've done, but you were born into this death. You were born dead. How can you born dead make yourself alive? You must be born again. You must have an infusion of the Holy Spirit as a new creation. So here's what our journey marker is. And it's weird because I've never, I don't think I've ever done this, but it's a question. A journey marker as a question, something to think about, to bring it a little bit more personal to us. And it's this. Do, do you, does it in some way upset you? In some way that you cannot work yourself into the house of mercy? I think it upset the guy, the, the invalid, and it definitely upset the Jews. But what about you? Does it in some way upset you that you cannot work yourself into the house of mercy, but that it is brought to you as a gift? Now, on the surface, I bet all of us would be like, who would be upset about that? I'm just saying, let's just, let's just survey. We are inundated with the religious system of doing in order to be. And we can do a lot of doing. That's where Andrew Farley calls it do-do religion. We can do and do and do. And we think that it gets us somewhere. We think that by our doing gets us a little bit closer, a little bit cleaner. Well, I wasn't what I did last week. I'm not, I didn't do that, so I'm doing better now based on my doing And when we are faced with the truth that none of our effort whatsoever will ever take us further into the house of mercy than what Jesus has already done for us, it can can, uh, rub us a little bit. Well, what about all that I've done? So I think my challenge, what I'm hearing the Lord say is, Let us rejoice in what he's done and let his spirit that's been infused to you do. Let him do. Let him work. But it's never going to be, you're never going to get further into this pool of mercy by your effort, by your doing. What is the end result of thinking one can work themselves into the house of mercy the end result is judgment on all behalf. If you think by your doing, you working your way further into the house of mercy, then you will have judgment upon those who aren't working as hard as you're working to get into the house of judgment. You see that? That's what the Jews were doing. They were judging Jesus. You're not working as hard as we are. Look how faithful we are. But here's, I think, where it really hurts us. We can shake our heads at this and say, yeah, I don't get upset. It's grace, it's grace, it's all God's grace. But here's where it kind of hurts. If you cannot work yourself into the house of mercy, can you work your way out of the house of mercy? See, that's where it just gets kind of like, whoa, wait a second. But what if this person, never myself, but what if this person who says they're a believer keeps doing this and keeps doing that and keeps in this and keeps in that? Well, If they are in the house of mercy, not by their own effort, they're not going to be out of the house of mercy by their own effort. Do you see this? 
So it's not us, up to us to judge who's in and out of the house of mercy. It's up to us to hear it and believe it for ourselves and then proclaim it clearly to those who would listen. So next week, again, Derek's going to continue this with the witnesses who testify to Jesus's, Jesus being the Son of God. And I encourage you to come back. But before we break and dismiss, anybody have any questions or thoughts or what abouts? Yes, sir. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, right on. Yeah, Steve? Has anybody else ever heard this old saying that there is no such thing as a free lunch? Mm -hmm. Does this fly in the face of that? Does what Jesus say fly in the face of that? I mean, I've just heard that all my life. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there... I think there's a, right, right. So it wasn't free, like what Stephanie's saying. It cost the very life of God, but now it's freely given. But the cost was his very own life on the cross. So it was a gift that was purchased and given to you. That's a great, great reminder, Stephanie. Thank you. Um, but yeah, like, what, like with Drake this morning, when I was mentioning that about, you know, who could get in. We talk about we talked about the the like in this world, um, you know you have to work in order to get you know get paid get you know make money you know you have to if you don't work you don't eat you know Paul says in this world but then the same Paul also says do not be conformed to the pattern of this world be transformed by the renewing of your mind the pattern of this world is you work to achieve. Well, there's another system, another world in the spirit that says he worked and he achieved and he's now given. And so to see the two worlds, the two kingdoms is critical. If in this world you don't eat and you don't want to, I mean, you don't work and you don't want to. Hey, you know, we can have you to lunch a couple times, but at some point you're going to be mowing the yard or something to earn in this world. But in the kingdom of heaven, we have to realize that that's that that doesn't. It's it's a different economy. It's a totally different economy. If we bring our doings to the to the kingdom of heaven for for payment, it's like it's like going to you know uh, Walmart with some Russian rubles to purchase you know a sandwich. They're like, what is this? It's, It's it's not our economy. We don't have that currency in America. Same deal. God has no recognition of the currency of works, of effort, of labor in his world, in his kingdom. It's all the blood of Christ. Except the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Not rubles. Awesome. Um, 
I just wanted to add something about uh, specifically verse 26. Um, and uh, I guess to go back to the previous few weeks, several weeks earlier that we've been talking through John, um, Christ has been basically uh, like through Nicodemus and through the Samaritan woman constantly talking about um, the spiritual realm without reference to the physical mm-hmm. and everybody's like hearing him and thinking about the physical mm-hmm. um, and they're like how can this be this can't happen in the physical world uh, right. when he's not talking about the physical world mm-hmm. in the first place um, so here when he says uh, for just as the father has life in himself even so he gave to the son also to have life in himself he's talking then about spiritual life right. like like you were saying um, if you're dead how can you have many how can you bring life about to yourself right you can't because right. you're all, you, everybody on the earth at this point has been or well not even at this point period everybody on earth is born dead right. spiritually um and jesus is saying he's the only one who was born with life right um that's it. So he's the only one who has the right exactly. to say any of this. Right, exactly. But yet they were taking the position that they were judging him. Right. And that's where he's like flipping it on and saying, no, you don't have any clue yeah. about what you're talking about. Yeah, right on. Yes, ma'am. I have something to say about works. Mm-hmm. Um, this is such an important uh, part of scripture. So I, I would think that in this room, I would see that um, everyone is in agreement that when we are born again into the kingdom of God, we begin to take on more of his likeness. That is what the transformation is. Yeah, true So thing. when we're born again, we come into a new way of thinking, a new, a new world that is not of this world. And, and that relationship with Christ Jesus is what transforms us on the inside to all the qualities that God possesses. Our works then become a result of that faith in Christ Jesus. Yeah. So when we are transformed on the inside, the outside world sees this expression of our transformation in Christ, which results in things such as wanting to help the needy, wanting to help the poor, wanting to help the sick, wanting to do things for people of this world to bring them into a closer relationship with Christ Jesus. So these works that we do for the kingdom of God are things that show other people who Christ is. So those works become an expression of him. Right. So there's a good relationship there between works and our, our salvation that is found only through him. And yes, we can sit there and bask in the light that us who believe in, in the risen Christ are going to spend forever in the kingdom of God. This is all truth. But that truth should result in a transformation within yourself that is so visible to the world yep. that they see you doing things that are the things of Christ. You cannot just begin to believe that you can just take on this transformational thing within you and have no nothing to show for it afterwards. It it should be so visible to the world. You should be wanting to go and scream his name from the rooftops. And so I would say that let your works just glorify him. So find something, some way to enter into that and bring it to the world and lay it at the feet of Christ and say, I do these things for you because of who you are. Yeah. And I want to honor you. Yeah. So what is it that Paul calls those things? Yeah. <laughs> what is it that, that Paul calls those things? The fruits of the spirit or the fruit singular of the spirit. Right. So you have the works of the flesh, which are evident, 
but you have the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And those things are fruit of the Spirit. It's not your effort. It's not your, uh, uh, you know, your, your, your trying harder. See, for so many years, I know I've told you this before, I turned the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc. I turned that into the, the basically the New Testament uh, Ten Commandments. Be loving, be kind, be fruit, uh, love, patient, be, you know, etc. Be these things, do these things. But that's not at all how the apostles taught this. It is the fruit, it's the result of the abiding reality of Christ in you. And what is it that Paul says? Brings the fruit about a revelation of his what? Love. His love towards you. So if we want to see more, quote, fruit of the Spirit manifested through us, then what is really our prerogative, our objective? Bask in his love love towards us. That's exactly it. At least that's what the apostles taught, you know. Yeah. So for a good part of my life, um, I think this is true of a lot of Christians who maybe aren't there yet with what you just said. They're born again, but it's so easy to sort of segment your life to, okay, well, my work life and, you know, I'm going to do my work. Uh And it's far better to go to realize the work is a gift from God than employment. Right, yeah. You know, Uh that that you're actually going there to engage with Christ throughout the day. Right, yeah. Yeah, it's like we talked about the priorities. Yeah. 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 It's like we've talked about like Colossians three, where Paul says that Christ who is your life for so long, we prioritize like, well, Jesus is the number one in my life. Then I've got my marriage then I've got my family. Then I've got my job. And so what do we do? We see them so dissected. So separate from one another. What Paul says, no, Jesus isn't the number one priority of your life. He is your life. So in your marriage, in your work, in your family, in your parenting, in your whatever, Jesus is your life in all of those things. And uh, this makes a huge difference. So now, you know, talking to people, leading teams at State Farm or, you know, wherever we are in our works, it's not, oh, I need to get back to my priority, Jesus being the number one priority in my life. No, while I'm there, he is my life. Every breath, every moment of the day, rooting on my daughter at the state finals, he is my life. It's not a competition. Jesus is not in competition with your family or your wife for the number one point role in your life. He is your life. And as long as we see him as in competition for these things, then we're pinning our families against Jesus, our, our lives against Jesus. He is our life. It's so much better. I mean, just what the apostles taught 2,000 years ago. Maybe we should do it. Maybe we should go for it, right? Awesome. Any other thoughts? Questions? Yeah. I was reflecting a little bit about the thought that uh, Jesus was accused of working, and then he said, well, the Father works on the Sabbath. Yeah. And then I was thinking, is this in conflict with God worked six days, and then he rested on the Sabbath, and, and, and he rested from all his work? Mm-hmm. And, but I don't, I don't think it is, because he rested in the hell of the day, the Sabbath, and Christ is the Sabbath. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. And, yeah. and, and so then the work, when he said, when they accused him of working, they saw it as work. Mm-hmm. Because something took place. Right. Something physical took place. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, my father works here too, and yet, in Genesis it says he quit working. Mm-hmm. He now start again. Mm-hmm. But it was, I think it was a rest mm-hmm. 
rather than in work, you know, mm -hmm. the idea of laboring right. less right. Mm -hmm. is, is in, in the finished work that he did, yeah. he works now because he finished the work. Yeah. And the people who are works oriented, I guess, yeah. are still thinking about everything that God did and we want to continue the six days rather than right. the rest right. of the Sunday. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, so God rested on the seventh day to give us um, as humans kind of like a a guideline of what to follow because we need rest. We're not God. Like, God didn't need rest on the seventh day. So, he, uh, even now, is working constantly to keep the physical laws of this world in place. Um, if he wasn't working to do that, like, everything would disappear. Um, at least that's what I believe. Mm -hmm. But, uh, so he rested on the seventh day to give us a guideline of what to follow as imitating him. Yeah. I mean, Hebrew, uh, Hebrews says it very plainly that he rested on the seventh day because the creation was complete. So he stopped. That's what Sabbath means. And it just stopped to cease. And so he stopped creation because it was complete. And then we now enter into that same completion of the finished work of Christ, and we can rest, enter into that rest. Why? Because the work is complete of the redemption of our sins, the forgiveness of our sins, and the redemption of our souls. That work is complete. So the seventh day of rest was really a foreshadowing to our current state right now in Christ, where we can rest from our efforts of trying to accomplish forgiveness, restoration, of trying to get into the pool of mercy. We can rest from that. We can enter into that rest because he accomplished it. And the fruit, as we were saying, the fruit of the spirit as we rest is the supernatural love, joy, peace, patience, kindness that comes to us now naturally because of the life of the spirit in us fused to our new heart. It's not be loving, be kind. It is the fruit of that awareness of our life in him. In real estate, the, you have three key things. What? Location, location, and location. In the spiritual world, you have what? Awareness, awareness, awareness. Are we aware of what he's done to us? Are we aware of how near he now is? Are we aware of this love that he has? Wake up, O slumber, and behold what he's actually done. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. I love you. We love what we can read about you. But may this time never be just words off of a page that we're trying to study and learn. But Father, may the written word of God be like that bright neon arrow pointing us to the living word who is now alive in us, Christ in us, our hope of glory. And so, Father, may this reality of what you have done be so real to us that we can taste it, smell it, touch it, feel it, not so that we can just have some sort of experience, but so that we can really come to terms with the new reality so that the fruit of your spirit may be on display through us, not to enter further, but because of an awareness of just how far you have entered us into. So, Father, we thank you so much. We love you. We're so grateful for what you've done. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Have a great week. I look forward to seeing you next week.
Thank you again for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We'd love to hear from you. If God is doing something special in your life, let us know by sending an email to info at lifejourneyva.com. Feel free to pass today's teaching on to any friends and family that you'd like, but please don't change any of it or charge for it. This podcast is made available for free as a ministry of Life Journey Church. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. Have a great day.